are you here? You ever thought about that? Why are you here in worship today? There are probably a variety of reasons that you have chosen to come and be in this room at Longview Point Baptist Church. Perhaps you're here based upon family obligation. It's just, you know, what you ought to do with your family. Or social convention. You're here because it's a respectable thing to do. Or maybe just a sense of religious ritual has brought you here. You're here because that's just what you do. You, you come to church. Why are you here? I wonder how many of you walked into this room this morning thinking, I'm about to encounter the living God, and He's going to change my life. If we approach worship from that perspective, things begin to change in our weekly worship gathering. And I want to talk to you about life-changing worship, what life-changing worship looks like. And I want us to see this in the book of Acts. So turn there with me, Acts chapter 10, as we are continuing our study, line by line, verse by verse, this New Testament book, Acts chapter 10. We will begin reading in verse 30, Acts chapter 10, verse 30. I'd like to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 10, verse 30. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner, by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. Watch this. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Great and awesome is your name. And we are here to worship you. We are here to you to to ascribe the worth that is due your name. And so would you just move in our midst? Would you give us the grace to encounter you in these moments? Lord, by your Spirit, would you open the eyes of our hearts that we would see the truths of Scripture and give us the wherewithal, give us the grace to to adjust our lives according to what we are learning. And I pray that in everything, the name of Jesus, the mighty name of Jesus, the strong name of Jesus, the precious name of Jesus would be lifted up and that we would leave this place today forever changed as as we have encountered the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. And we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As we've worked our way through Acts chapter 10, we've seen how God did something in the life of Cornelius, a Roman centurion living in Caesarea, and how God did something in the life of Peter to bring them together so Cornelius could hear the good news about Jesus and be saved. 
At the beginning of Acts chapter 10, God sends an angel to say to Cornelius, God sees that you're seeking after him according to the structures of Judaism. But if you're going to be saved, you have to hear the gospel and respond to Jesus Christ. So I want you to send to Joppa about 30 miles away for a man named Simon Peter. He's there now, and he'll come back and give you the message you need to hear. Around the same time, God appeared to Peter in Joppa in a vision. There was this sheet coming down out of heaven with all kinds of animals on the sheet. And Peter saw clean animals and unclean animals according to the Jewish dietary laws. And God wanted to show him through this vision that, that he was declaring all foods clean, that he did not have to hold those dietary laws anymore. And because he did not have to hold those dietary laws, he no longer had to stay far away from the Gentiles. He could go to the Gentiles and go in their home and eat with them and encounter them and engage them with the good news. And so in that vision, God was tearing down a wall that kept Peter separated from the Gentile world. And, and God wanted to tear on that wall so Peter would go to them and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we've seen how God appeared to Cornelius, how God appeared to Peter. And in our text this morning, God brings them together. Peter leaves Joppa with the messenger sent from Cornelius, goes back to Caesarea, enters the home of Cornelius, and begins to share the good news about Jesus Christ. And as Peter walks in that home as a missionary a worship service breaks out. And it's interesting to see the dynamics, the components, the characteristics, the ingredients of this worship service. What happens in Acts chapter 10 is a life-changing encounter with God. And I think that we can look at the ingredients of this worship service and apply them to our lives and to our church so we can experience life-changing worship too. Because We don't want to just go through the motions, right? We want to encounter the living God. So how do we experience life-changing worship? Well, let me just walk you through these five ingredients this morning. First of all, we see an expectant congregation. An expectant congregation. Look what the Bible says there in verse 30. Cornelius explains to Peter why he sent for him. He says, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa, ask for Simon, who is called Peter. And so, verse 33, Cornelius says, So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here. I love this. We are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. And so there was a gathering in the household of Cornelius that was expectant. They wanted to hear what God had to say to them through the instrumentality of Peter. Now I want to make several comments about this congregation, this gathering in Cornelius' home. First of all, the congregation included the family of Cornelius. Look what it says there in verse 24. It says, on the following day, they, Peter and his associates, entered Caesarea, traveling from Joppa. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives. Notice that. Cornelius cares about his family. And he knows that a messenger is coming to them to speak to them on behalf of God. And so Cornelius gathers his relatives. He gathers his family family together so they can hear this good news. They can hear this message. In other words, Cornelius was concerned, listen, with the spiritual welfare of his 
family. Can the same be said of you? Are you concerned with the spiritual welfare of your family, your immediate family, your extended family? Are you concerned about their spiritual well-being? Have you invited them to, to attend church with you? Do you make sure that your immediate family is involved in the life of the local church, that they are in worship? I want to tell you one thing I'm very grateful for in my past, my, my upbringing, is that my dad believed that my brother and I needed to be in worship. And he made sure that every Sunday morning we were up and we were fed and clothed and in the vehicle heading to church every Sunday morning. My dad was faithful in that because he cared about our souls and knew that we needed to experience worship. And he wanted us, listen, to experience worship with him. He wanted us in the pew with him. Now, I want you to hear this very carefully. We live in a day where families are being bombarded with busyness. There are all these different things trying to distract our families from worshiping God as a matter of first priority. And I want to say to you as your pastor, don't let that happen to your family. You need to make sure that your kids are in church with you, that they are being exposed to worship. When they get old enough, they are sitting beside you, watching you listen to the sermon, watching you praising God through song. You need to care about not just extracurricular things related to your kids, you need to care about their soul. Because listen to me, all the other things that we concern ourselves with are going to pass away. But the souls of your children will go on for eternity. And the Bible says, listen, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? What does it matter what your children have achieved if their souls have not been saved by Jesus? Cornelius cared about his family. He wanted them to hear from God. You see, you should want your kids, your, your spouse, your, your extended family to hear from God. So he made sure they were there for that gathering. Secondly, the congregation consisted of other invited guests. Look what it says in verse 24. Cornelius was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. And so Cornelius begins to invite folks. Probably says something like this. There's a messenger that's coming here. He's going to give us a message from God. I want you to hear it. It's important. Would you come to my house so you can hear this message? You know what we see in this verse? We see the power of personal invitation. And I believe that personal invitation carries with it great potential for the church today. And I believe it's an untapped reservoir of outreach in local churches. Let me tell you why I believe that. About 10 years ago, there was a survey done of unchurched people, people that didn't go to church regularly anywhere. And they asked them how likely they were to attend church. And listen to this response. Eight out of the 10, 80% of those surveyed who weren't involved in church anywhere said they were at least somewhat likely to attend if personally invited. 80%. If someone personally invited them, they said they're at least somewhat likely to attend. Now let me give you the statistics of Christians that ever invite an unchurched person to church. Statistics show that only 2% 
of Christians ever invite an unchurched person to church? Do you see the gap there? 80% saying they're at least somewhat likely to attend, and only 2% ever inviting someone that's not in church. I'm telling you, there is great potential if we would just encounter folks out there in the workplace, in the school, in the marketplace, in our neighborhoods, and say, would you come to Longview Point Baptist Church with me? I want you to understand there is power in personal invitation. Because when they come, they're hearing the gospel. They're seeing people that love Jesus, praising his name. And that will have an impact in their life. When was the last time you personally invited someone to church? Cornelius did. He invited his friends to be there with him. So the congregation consisted of, of other invited guests. You know what we've learned from, through statistics, through surveys? It doesn't matter the generation. Senior adults, median age adults, young adults, millennial generation. It doesn't matter what generation you're talking about. All of them want to be invited to church. And are, are likely to take you up on it if you ask them. But there's a third thing about this congregation I want you to see. The congregation was large. It was large. Look what it says in verse 27. It says, as he, uh, Peter, talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Isn't that interesting? There were many persons. It was a large group. And what we don't see Peter doing is this. This is a big group. We're all kind of packed in this house. It's a little uncomfortable. So can we send some folks home? I've got a very important message from God, but we need to thin out the numbers here. It's just too crowded. Peter doesn't do that. Peter sees it as, a, as an opportunity to share the gospel with that large gathering in the home of Cornelius. And here's why that's important. I've heard through the years people say something like this. This church or some other church that they're part of, the church is getting too big. She's getting too big. Just, she's changing too much. Too many people there. You know, it's crowded. It's packed. It's, you know, on Sunday morning, there's a lot of folks. It's just not like it used to be. And the church is getting too large. And, and we don't like it the way we used to. Question. If that's your mindset, what would you have me to do? Should, should I be out in the front lobby with the staff turning people away? Because there are people in there that may have to sit by you and there's no gap in the seats on your row. It's too crowded. Had to circle through for a parking space, whatever. Should, I, should we be, listen, should we be turning people away because it's getting too large? Or should we see it as an opportunity for a lot of folks to hear the gospel? We're going to keep sending out mission teams in North America and all around the world. We're going to keep planting churches that plant churches that plant churches. But we're also here in Hernando going to try to get as many people here as we can because we believe the gospel changes lives. And we're not going to turn people away because we're getting large. That doesn't make sense. We want as many people as possible to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I know there's challenges and we've got to work harder at small groups and building relationships because those are very, very vital and important. But listen to me. What would you have us do? Say, hey, it's time to stop growing. Hey, here's our cutoff. We reached this number. Now we're done reaching folks. What? That's not New Testament. 
There's a large gathering, and it doesn't bother Peter at all. It's just an opportunity for him to share the gospel with more folks. So this congregation was large. Hey, by the way, some of the same folks that don't like to sit by someone in worship because it's too crowded will go sit in a stadium of tens of thousands of people where beer and Coke is being spilled on them, and they'll wave little pom-poms, and they'll scream at the top of their lungs, and they don't mind the crowds a bit. They'll wait in lines in the bathroom, and they'll wait for parking and pay, pay for parking and, and walk a mile from their parking to the state. They don't mind a bit for a football game, but let the church get crowded. We're getting too big. That's absurd. It was a large congregation. Also, this congregation was expecting to hear from God. Look what it says in verse 24. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. That's Peter and his associates. Cornelius was expecting them. He was expecting them. And look in verse 33. He says to Peter, I sent for you at once after this vision. You have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here. We're here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. We can't wait to hear your message. We know you've got something to say to us on behalf of God. We are expected. We know God is going to speak through you. I wonder if you came to church today with that kind of expectancy. Not just going through the motions, but knowing that when you get to the gathering of believers, you're going to hear a message from the Word of God, and God was going to directly, personally speak into your life. Did you come with that kind of expectancy? Because here's the deal. There's a powerful dynamic that occurs when people gather expecting to encounter God. There's a powerful dynamic that occurs when people gather expecting to encounter God. I did some quick math, and I estimate conservatively, this is conservatively, that through my lifetime, I've been involved in over 3,000 worship services. Probably more than that if you count seminary chapels and denominational meetings and revivals and those sorts of things. But just through the ebb and flow of of growing up in church and being a pastor and my family being a part of church, about 3,000 worship services. That's a lot of worship services, right? A lot of songs, a lot of sermons. Can I tell you this? After being through thousands and thousands of worship services, I still could not wait to get here today. Because there's nothing like the gathering of God's people when God is present with them and He speaks to us through His Word. Hollywood can't match it. Athletics can't touch it. There is nothing like encountering the living God in corporate worship. Nothing like it. So even though I've been to 3,000 plus worship services, I could not wait to be here today. And so what is the first ingredient of a life-changing worship service? An expectant congregation. Number two, Christ-centered preaching. Christ-centered preaching. I think it's interesting to note that Peter was not interested in building a cult of personality. Because look what it says in verse 25. Peter walks in the, the house and Cornelius met him, fell down at his feet and worshipped him. So, so Cornelius says, well, this man sent from God, he's, I'm going to pay homage to him. He didn't know any better. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. In other words, Peter's saying, it's not about me. It's not about my magnetism or, or my position or my importance or my person. It's not about me. Well, if it wasn't about Peter, who was it all about? Well, when we look at Peter's sermon, we see it was all about Jesus. 
His sermon is saturated with Christ. Let me just walk you through quickly his sermon that clearly focused upon Jesus. First of all, he told them that Jesus gives us peace. Fast forward to verse 34. The Bible says, Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In other words, God wants to save not just Jews but Gentiles. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. So he's about to tell them about Jesus and he says, This word is about Jesus who, who brings us, who gives us peace. In other words, peace only comes through Jesus Christ. A lot of people want the peace of God without first experiencing peace with God. And I want you to hear this. You'll never experience the peace of God until you have peace with God. And there's only one way to have peace with God. That's through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 says we have been, we, we've been justified by, by faith, so we have peace with God. And, and Peter reminds them there's only one way to experience peace. It's through Jesus Christ. And then he tells them, That Jesus, the one he came to preach, is Lord of all. Look what it says in verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. In other words, Peter wanted the hearers to understand that Jesus was not just another religious option on a buffet line of religious beliefs. Jesus is Lord of all. He wanted them to understand that. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is over all. And then he taught them that Jesus, during his time on the earth, was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. Look what it says in verse 38. Or verse 37, he says, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. So he wants them to understand that Jesus left heaven, came to earth, and did good things. He healed people. He cast out demons. He set people free. And, and he tells them he did all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God, the second person of the Godhead. But when he was on the earth, he modeled for us how you live according to the power of the Spirit. And as the Spirit anointed Jesus, Jesus did great and mighty things for the glory of God to prove that he was the Messiah walking among men. But then Peter points him to the cross. He says, Jesus died on the cross. Look what it says in verse 39. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. The cross was was central in the theology of the apostles. Because the apostles understood that when Jesus went to the cross, he was perfect. He did nothing wrong. He never sinned. And yet on the cross, he took all of our sin, all of our filth, all of our shame, all of our iniquity, and he placed it on himself. And on the cross, Jesus died for our sins. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. You say, why would he do that? Why would one who is perfect die for me? Why would one who is perfect pay the penalty for my sins? Because he loves you. That's why. Peter teaches them this Jesus 
Lord of all, who gives peace, was put to death on the cross. But then he tells him the rest of the story. Jesus was raised from the dead. Look in verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So he's saying Jesus Christ died on the cross. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. He defeated death itself. He's alive today, and we know because we encountered him. That's what Peter says. And then he wanted them to understand that Jesus is the final judge of all people. Look at the next verse, verse 42. And he commanded us, Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So Peter wanted the folks in the household of Cornelius to understand this. You will either experience Jesus as Savior or judge. Because on that day, Jesus will be the judge. He will be the determiner of where every person spends eternity, heaven or hell. And the Bible teaches that where a person spends eternity, heaven or hell, is based upon what they do with Jesus in this life. You wanted them to understand, this Jesus I'm preaching is not just another religious figure. He's the judge. The implication is you need to be right with him. And so notice, this sermon is just saturated with Christ. It's just filled with Jesus. It's all about him. When he had one shot to preach to these people, you know what he preaches about? Jesus Christ. And that's highly instructive. Can I say this to you by way of application? If you ever move into another community and are looking for another church, and by the way, that's the only reason you can look for another church is if you move. If you don't move, then why are you looking for another church? Amen? But let's just say you move into another community and you're looking for another church and and you're visiting around and you go to a church and a pastor stands up and preaches a sermon and hardly mentions Jesus. Here's my pastoral counsel. Don't walk, run from that church. Because a New Testament church is one that is not built around a cult of personality. A New Testament church is built upon the foundation of Christ-centered preaching. Peter shows us that. If you want to experience life-changing worship, just, just preach Jesus. Because Jesus is the one that saves. Amen? I can't save, you can't save, but Jesus saves. So who should we be talking about? Jesus Christ. I've thought about sermons that I've heard through the years that have marked my life and and really changed the trajectory of my life. And the sermons that I've heard from godly men through the years that have marked me are sermons that have been focused upon, saturated with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for preachers that preach Jesus. Peter did. And that's the second ingredient of a life-changing worship service. Let me give you the third ingredient. There's a call to follow Jesus. Look what it says in verse 43. To him, to Jesus, all the prophets. He's speaking here of the Old Testament prophets. So the the, the Bible, the word of God, the Old Testament is his foundation for his authority for preaching. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Notice that that word, everyone. He's speaking to a Gentile audience. 
And his point here is this. Jesus Christ is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. So if you want forgiveness, like we've experienced forgiveness, if you'll just believe on him, if you'll place your faith in him, you can experience salvation. People not only, Peter not only wanted the people to know about Jesus, he wanted them to know Jesus. And there's a big difference. He gave them some facts and some truths about the life of Jesus, but then he tells them, if you'll believe in him, you can be saved because forgiveness is for everyone who believes. That's the point that Peter makes. He calls them to believe in Jesus Christ so that they could be forgiven and have a personal relationship with him, which leads me to this application for our church. A plea should always follow proclamation. A plea should always follow proclamation. In other words, when we proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus Christ has done, we should always plead for the souls of men. We should ask people to follow him. We should call people to repentance and faith. A plea should always follow proclamation. Because not only did did Peter share some facts about Jesus, he called them to believe in him. Everyone who believes can experience or receive forgiveness of sins. A plea should always follow proclamation. Let me tell you one reason. I'm, I'm grateful for my Baptist heritage. I grew up Baptist. I was Baptist before I was a Christian. And by the way, you know that's possible, right? And one thing I remember about growing up in a Baptist church is, at the end of a worship service, there was always a plea asking people to give their lives to Jesus. I told you I've been in over 3,000 worship services. That's a conservative estimate. Probably 2,500 of them we sang the song, Just As I Am. And we'd sing all the stanzas. Sometimes start over again. And I remember there'd be times my pastor would come down and he'd stop the singing for a moment and he'd give just just one more plea. We're going to sing one more time. What marked my life was the fact that my pastor wanted people to be saved. And he wasn't just there to present some facts from the Bible. He was calling people to follow the Jesus he was proclaiming. He was pleading for men's souls. Now, I understand there's nothing magical about walking an aisle or having an invitation time. But I believe that when Jesus Christ is proclaimed, there should be an opportunity for people to respond. Because you never know who's out there listening that needs to give their life to Jesus. We ought always to give them that chance to say, I need Jesus. A plea should follow proclamation. Let me give you a fourth ingredient of life-changing worship. And it is the power of the Spirit. Look what happens in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things. In other words, Peter had not yet said, every head bowed, every eye closed. He's still preaching, and God has the audacity to interrupt his sermon. Look what happens. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. As I studied this this past week, I thought, God, would you interrupt some more of my sermons? Would you interrupt our order of worship and just move with power by your Spirit? Peter's preaching Jesus. The Holy Spirit falls to do a work in their heart, drawing them to the Father. 
And the implication here is that they heard, were drawn by the Spirit, and believed in Jesus Christ and were saved. The believers, the Jews who were there with Peter, it says in verse 45, from among the circumcision who had, had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. In other words, they were saying, hey, they get the Holy Spirit just like we do. And I believe that's why they see this visible manifestation of the Spirit so that they understand that the gift of salvation, the gift of the Spirit is not just for Jews. God grants it to Gentiles who place their faith in Christ. So there's this visible manifestation of the Spirit of God as the Spirit falls and people are saved. What should we learn from that? I believe that you and I should welcome and expect and plead for the work of the Spirit in our worship service. And here's the reason why. We can't touch the human heart. We can't change lives. Only God can do that. And so as we gather As we encounter God, as the word of God is going forth, we ought to ask the Spirit to move with power. You see, the Spirit of God is the one who gives understanding, who convicts and transforms hearts. We need Him. The old hymn says, All is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Do you believe that? You know, the... Spirit is compared by way of metaphor to rivers of living water. And those rivers of living water are in us. If you're saved, the Holy Spirit indwells you. You're sealed in the Spirit till the day of redemption. That'll never change. The Spirit resides in you. But there are also times in the Bible where the Spirit is poured out by God, where He falls on a group of people and, and, and gives them a special empowerment for ministry, a special filling uh, as He moves in their midst. And, and I thought, we need God, the Spirit, to be poured out upon us as we gather for worship. And I thought about that metaphor of a river. And, and I thought about Niagara Falls. I've been there with my wife, and we got to see the Niagara River cascading over those cliffs. And it's pretty awesome to behold. And I did a little research, and I came across this amazing statistic 3,160 tons of water flow over Niagara Falls every second. 3,160 tons of water every second cascade over those cliffs. And I thought, God, that's what we need in our churches. We need the Spirit of God to cascade over the cliffs of heaven and fall on His church to awaken us, to empower us, to get our attention, to, 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 to grip us that we're no longer living in complacency and lethargy, to convict the lost. We need the Spirit of God. Amen? The power of the Spirit was evident in this text. But there's a fifth ingredient I want to give you, and we'll be through. We've talked about an expectant congregation, and Christ-centered preaching, and a call to follow Jesus, the power of the Spirit. But fifth and last, I want you to notice that vibrant praise, vibrant praise is a key ingredient in life-changing worship. Look what it says in verse 46. The, the, the Jews there with Peter were amazed. They saw the Spirit fall on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. I believe the tongues here is the same thing it was in Pentecost. 
They're speaking in foreign languages. People who were there from different backgrounds could understand the gospel in their language. And it says there, not only were they speaking in tongues, they were extolling God. Now that word extolling God is an interesting word. It's, it's the Greek word megaluno. Do you hear the word mega at the beginning of that word? Mega is the word for great, big, mighty. Megaluno means to make something big or to make something great. Or it means something like to praise the greatness of something or someone. So it says here they're extolling God. These folks who were saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ were so overwhelmed that they were praising the greatness of God. They were extolling Him. Praising, no doubt, music, singing, worshiping. They were filled with vibrant praise. In response to God's grace, the people exalted God. And here's the deal. We know that their praise was real. We know that their praise was authentic because their obedience was immediate. Look what it says in verse 47. Peter declared, he he saw them, experienced the gift of the Spirit. They were saved. They were in Christ. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? In other words, Peter said, Jesus told us, after someone becomes a disciple of Christ, you need to baptize them. So, should we baptize them? And he commanded them, verse 48, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They asked him to remain for some days. The implication is the people in, in, in this Gentile household were baptized after their conversion. You know what they were doing? They were obeying. Oh, Jesus said, be baptized? Well, where do we go? Let's get dunked. That's what happens. Immediate obedience. And that's how you know that their praise was real. Can I tell you this? The way that we know that our praise is real is by what happens on Monday and Tuesday and during the week. Because if our praise is genuine, if our worship is real, then it'll affect the way we live. It'll be followed by radical obedience. Amen? But we see here in this text, vibrant praise. These Gentile people cannot get over the fact that God saved them. I read an interesting story about a seminary professor of counseling, Dr. Sharon Hirsch. And she visited a Cambodian village. And this Cambodian village was interesting because in the 70s, it was a central location for the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge were a, uh, were a communist ruling party in Cambodia. And they ruled in the mid to late 70s, and they were led by an evil man named Pol Pot. This regime, this, this evil communist regime, is believed to have killed over one million people using very brutal tactics during their reign of terror. Because they were centered, located where this village in Cambodia is, the people were known in this village even today as Khmer Rouge. And the other Cambodians despised this village because of their past affiliation. As a matter of fact, the people in this village never venture far from home. They say it's too dangerous. These villagers are prisoners in their own land, hated for the sins of their fathers. So they're outcasts in Cambodia. And this seminary professor arrives and attends a worship service. 
a Christian worship service. And here's what she says about this service. She said it was one of the most vibrant experiences of worship she'd ever witnessed. She said there was so much joy, so much emotion, so much confession, so much exaltation of and desire for God. She said the people were excited, expectant, enthusiastic, and enthralled. And she asked a local, is it always like this? Do these people always worship like this? And this local villager said this, yes. They believe that God is the only one that wants them. And so they want him. These Cambodian villagers, ostracized by the people around them, were overwhelmed by God's grace. That God loved them and God saved them. And their worship was vibrant because they could not get over the fact that God saved them. Listen to me. Are you joyous today that God wants you? That He chose in His grace to save you? And our only response is praise, vibrant praise, radical obedience, because God loves us. These Gentile believers felt wanted by the God of Israel through His Son, Jesus Christ, and they began to extol God. And so here's the point of the sermon. One of the ways the Lord changes lives is in gatherings of people where Jesus is proclaimed and praised. Don't miss that. One of the primary ways that we see God change lives in the Bible and in human history and in our context is in gatherings of people where people get together and Jesus Christ is preached and Jesus Christ is praised. God works in gatherings like that. And so our desire is to see not just worship as a ritual, just something we do. We want to see life-changing worship where we truly, authentically, genuinely encounter the living God.